Good afternoon. Oh, Good afternoon. Hello. There we go. I have the uh, une unenviable time slot right after lunch, so uh, I know if, if some of you nod off, I will not be offended. I won't take offense at that. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and we will begin. Father, as we gather as your people that you have called to yourself, we have gathered around your word now, and so we pray that we would be sanctified in the truth of your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work of illumination, help us to understand your word, and live lives of obedience to your word for the glory of Christ our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and open to the book of James. We'll be in James chapter 1, and we will read verses 1 through 4 with an emphasis on 2 through 4. The blessings of afflictions. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard translation. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are in the dispersion, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May God bless the reading of his word. There are four different James in the New Testament. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. And we refer to James as the half-brother of Jesus, of course, because Jesus was conceived of a virgin. Uh, but after the birth of Jesus, then Mary and Joseph, much to the consternation of the Roman Catholic Church, had other children the old-fashioned way. And so Jesus had siblings. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't like that, but he, but he did. And uh, the first thing that I want to bring your attention to, notice how James opens his letter. He says, James, now your translation may say bondservant, but that word in the Greek is doulos, it is slave. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that James did not appeal to his familial relationship with Jesus. He could have boasted about that, but he didn't. He didn't say anything, I am James, the half-brother of Jesus. I am James, we were raised under the same roof. No, he didn't do that. He didn't appeal to his familial relationship. He appealed to his spiritual relationship with Christ. I am James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James understood that his most important relationship to Jesus was not as his half-brother, but as his slave. And this is particularly noteworthy when we remember that Jesus' siblings initially didn't believe in him. They thought their half-brother had uh, lost his mind. It wasn't until after his resurrection they came to believe in him. James came to believe that his half-brother was indeed who he said he was, the Son of God. And then James understood, my most important relationship with my half-brother is not as his half-brother. It is as his slave. 
the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, oftentimes our most meaningful relationships are not with members of our own family if they are not Christians. Oftentimes our most meaningful relationships are simply with other believers. And we can have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with a believer maybe that we've just met for the very first time. Five minutes ago, we didn't even know who they were, but when, when you have, a, when you have that, that meeting with a like-minded believer in Christ, uh, you know that there's a bond there, right? There's a, a, a bond and a love and a fellowship there. And this is what James was appealing to as he opens his letter. Verse 2, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, afflictions. Dear friends, our lives are marked by times of affliction and trial. Notice that James doesn't say count it all joy if you encounter various trials, but rather when. Life is marked by times of tears and pain. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each and every day we're going to run into at least a little bit of trouble. John 16, 33, Christ says, In this world you will have trouble. Job chapter 5, verse 7, For man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just as naturally as when you stoke a fire and those sparks fly up, just as naturally uh, do we encounter trials in our lives. The fallen state of this world, that all creation groans under the weight of sin, just as naturally as sparks fly upward, the fallen state of our world creates trials and affliction. Job chapter 14 verse 1 Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of trouble. You won't see that verse on the front of a Hallmark card anytime soon. <laughs> the Apostle Paul was troubled. If you will, flip over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to bring your attention to this text. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse, beginning in verse 23. Paul says... Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, now watch this list, in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches." Other than that, everything was going great. <laughs> the Apostle Paul was troubled. Jesus himself was troubled. John chapter 11 records for us how Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit at the death of Lazarus, and he was troubled. And then, of course, just before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
as he knew what awaited him, not only the physical agony of the cross, but also soon the full undiluted fury of God's wrath that burns against the sins of his people would be poured out on him. Jesus was troubled. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus was troubled, dear ones, you and I will certainly experience trouble. The servant is not above his master. Trials and afflictions are inevitable. And James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We face all kinds of different trials, right? We've, the emphasis here is not so much on the number of trials, but the diversity of trials. We have trials in our health, trials in our finances, trials of persecution, whether hard or soft. And dear ones, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, you will be persecuted. And there are no exception clauses for that unless you live in the United States of America. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Maybe not hard persecution, maybe not North Korea kind of persecution, but there should be some soft persecution somewhere. And if you've never faced any persecution for your faith in Christ, then you're not living godly in Christ Jesus. We have trials of abandonment, alienation of affection from members, even sometimes of our own family, when we stand upon the word of God. It will cost us. Trials and afflictions are inevitable, and they are varied. So now I want us to look at the meaning of afflictions, the meaning of our trials. Some think that trials should only happen to the ungodly. Uh, this was the perspective that Asaph had in Psalm chapter 73. You might remember in Psalm 73, if you're not familiar with Psalm 73, I encourage you to read it. It's a beautiful psalm. But Asaph in Psalm 73 looked about him and he saw the righteous suffering, but the wicked were prospering. And it vexed him. The godly people were suffering, and yet these manifestly wicked people were prospering. Why do the wicked prosper when the righteous suffer? This was the question that Asaph had. And he said, quote, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. It was so vexing for him when he saw the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper that he said, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. He almost peered, or did peer, into the abyss of apostasy. The age-old question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? I think most of us in this room understand that is the wrong question. It is not that God allows bad things to happen to good people. The real question is, why does God cause good things to happen to bad people? Because there are no good people. There is only one who is good, and that is God. We are all bad people. It is a marvel that God is so kind and gracious that he actually causes good things to happen to us as bad people. Some think that adversity and trials and afflictions mean that God is somehow displeased with us, but often the opposite is the case. Recall the Old Testament character Job. Job was upright. He was blameless. He feared God and he shunned evil. 
And yet God still allowed Satan to come and to strike from Job everything that he had. His possessions destroyed, his family dead, his own health deteriorated. Job suffered because of his faith. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 said, quote, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then immediately after that, Stephen was stoned because of his faith. It's a very tender scene right before his death. It's like God allowed Stephen to, to peer into eternity and see Jesus not sitting but standing at the right hand of God as if ready to receive him. And then he was stoned. As I read the Bible, I often find myself asking the question rhetorically in my own mind, what is it in the New Testament that makes so many professing Christians think that they are somehow entitled to have their best, li best life now? What is it in the lives of the apostles that makes us think that Jesus will make our lives easier or, or better in a temporal sense? You know, when I read Joel Osteen or listen to him preach, like, what are you reading? What, what Bible are you reading, man? And it's not that these people don't have the same Bibles we do. They do. Joel Osteen's got the same Bible we do. So it's not that he is ignorant of what is in Scripture. It's that he hates Scripture. Now that may sound like a strong statement, but I stand by it. Joel Osteen hates the Word of God. Joel Osteen hates the God of the Bible. He has created a false God a God after his own image. And he preaches that God. He does not preach the God of the Bible. Jesus' own words in Pete to uh, Peter in John chapter 21. Remember Jesus said to Peter, Peter, when you were young, you used to gird yourself and go wherever you wished. But when you are old, when you are old, Peter, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and they will take you where you do not wish to go. And this, Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Put that verse in your seeker-sensitive pipe and smoke it. <laughs> oh, well, people don't want to hear that kind of message. You know what? You're right. Goats don't. Goats don't want to hear that kind of message. That kind of message will keep away the goats, but you know who it will attract? The sheep. It'll draw the sheep. This is the true gospel. The true gospel. Dear friends, if you have responded to a painless gospel, then you have not responded to the true gospel. Salvation is free, but discipleship is not. Oftentimes, Trials and afflictions are because of our faith. John 15, verse 20, Jesus said, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Again, an argument from the greater to the lesser. There was a, a woman named Amy Carmichael in the late 1800s, early 1900s, who served as a missionary in India. And she wrote this poem entitled, Hast Thou No Scar? Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? 
I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. In other words, people are singing your praises. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compass me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that leadeth me, but thine are whole. Can he have traveled far? Who hast no wound? Who hast no scar? Salvation is free. Discipleship is not. Oftentimes, suffering and affliction is not in spite of our faith. It is because of our faith in Christ. I want us now to look at the purpose of affliction, the purpose of our trials. One of the chief purposes of trials in our lives as believers is to engender in us humility. Humility. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. What revelations were these? You remember that Paul said that he knew a man who had been caught up into the third heaven, right? And he said, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. Paul was speaking about himself. This was the man who had been caught up into the third heaven. It was Paul himself. And Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh to keep me from exalting myself. Dear friends, none of us is without pride. If the Apostle Paul had pride, you and I will certainly struggle with pride. We live in a fallen world and none of us, hear me, none of us does anything with 100% pure motives. None of us does. Your grandmother could be hanging off the side of a cliff, clutching a dead branch, and you rush up to save her, and even you pulling your grandmother over the side of that cliff, you would not do that with 100% pure motives because we live in a fallen world. And I know this because I know it theologically that even as I sit up here and preach to you, even this I'm not doing with 100% pure motives. Now I do my best to put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8, 13, crucify the flesh and take every thought captive, but none of us does anything with 100% pure motives. All of us has pride. Each and every one of us does. And there's nothing like a good time of suffering, affliction, and trial to engender in us humility. If the Apostle Paul needed humility, you and I need humility. Number two, trials and afflictions serve for our conformation. Our conformation, not confirmation, but conformation. Suffering conforms us into the image of Christ. They conform us, the students, into the image of our master. Psalm chapter 119, verse 71, David said, It was good for me that I was afflicted, 
that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The affliction in and of itself is not good. Okay? Suffering in and of itself, isolated, is not a good thing because it's a result of us, us living in a fallen world. But it is good for us that we are afflicted. Does that make sense? It was good for David that he was afflicted so that he could learn the statutes of God. There is something about suffering that helps us to learn of God in an experiential way that otherwise we would not learn of him. Trials help us to learn of God experientially. They help us to learn of the sufficient grace. Paul cried out to Jesus three different times that that thorn in the flesh, and really in the Greek it's a scallops, it's a stake in the flesh. That was a, something that truly vexed him. And Paul prayed three times, Lord, take this away from me. And Jesus said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. Trials bring us to the end of ourselves. They help us to learn of God in an experiential way. Charles Spurgeon said this, I quote, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. Listen to the words from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. Paul says, But God who comforts the depressed. The depressed? We don't often think of the Apostle Paul in terms of being depressed, do we? But yet that is what he said. But God who comforts the depressed. Why was Paul depressed? Remember all of the suffering that he went through, that long list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And notice at the, at the end of that long list of physical suffering, dangers from rivers, robbers, countrymen, you know, five times from the Jews I received 39 lashes, do the math on that. At the end of all that physical suffering, Paul said on top of all of this, there's the daily concern that I have for the churches. He had concern for the churches. He saw some of these churches slipping into sin and factions and divisions, and he worried. He wrote in a few different places in the New Testament, I worry that I may have labored over you in vain. So even the Apostle Paul himself was troubled. He, was, he had concern. He worried to the point of depression. So where does he go? What is the source of his comfort? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Paul writes this. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. There's a lot of comfort going on in those verses. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of some comfort. 
all comfort, who comforts us in some of our affliction, all of our affliction. Dear friends, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, says that God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Trials and suffering will come to us. It's not an if, it's when. When those trials come, where do we as Christians go for our comfort? Not in a bottle. Not in a pill. Dear friends, you will not find rest for your soul in a bottle or a pill. You will not find rest for your troubled mind in a bottle or a pill. Do we believe what the Holy Spirit of God is inspiring here in his word or do we not? We do. And the Holy Spirit of God tells us that God is the God of all comfort. Not some. Not most. All. Who comforts us in all of our affliction. Paul continues. And he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, endurance. Knowing that the testing of your faith. This word test literally means to investigate. It means to find out. And dear friends, there is nothing like a good trial that serves to investigate us. Serves to find out what we're really made of. Oh, it's easy to be a Christian when everything is good, right? I mean, when the, there's plenty of money in the bank, when everybody likes us, you know, our, our bodies are young and strong and healthy. Oh, it's, it's easy to be a Christian then. But what about when there's not much money in the bank? What about when we get a bad report from the doctor? What about when the diagnosis comes back cancer? Then what? Then what are we made of? Nothing like a good trial, times of affliction that will serve to investigate us and find us out, find out what we are really made of. A true Christian will be driven to his knees in the face of a trial. Trials bring us face to face with our own frailties. It has been said that spiritual growth is a growth downward. It is only when we have a lower view of ourselves that we will have a higher view of God. The more highly we think of ourselves, the more lowly we will think of God. There is an inverse relationship between how we view ourselves and how we view God. Spiritual growth is a growth downward. And the fires of trials and affliction will burn up false professions of faith. They'll burn up false professions of faith. Not to pick on Joel Osteen, but to pick on Joel Osteen. The pastor of the largest church in the United States of America, at least it was up until recently, I don't know if it still is. One of them, certainly. Uh, Sunday morning, when, when real persecution comes to this country, I mean persecution like what our brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran face or Syria face or North Korea, that kind of persecution, when that kind of persecution comes to this country, you know what? Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas will go from the 
largest church in the United States of America to where on a Sunday morning you'll be able to hear a pin drop at Lakewood Church because those are just false professions of faith. And the fires of trials will burn those up. John 8, verse 31, Jesus says, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us. Why? Because they were not really of us. They looked good for a while, but then they abandoned us. This is the rocky soil of which Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 13. It immediately springs up, looks like the real thing, but when the sun comes out, and it beats down, and it beats down in afflictions and persecutions and trials. That initial growth is scorched, and it withers because there is no root, and there is no good soil under there. This is emotionalism. Uh, I can remember going to youth group. You know, every summer in youth group, we would go for a few days off somewhere and, you know, have youth camp, and we'd go off somewhere you know, down to Panama City or some place like that, and, you know, we'd get all emotional and we'd sing a bunch of Michael W. Smith songs and cry and slobber all over each other, and, you know, everybody comes back and we're just all on fire for Jesus. But then the next Sunday, it's back to normal because it's just emotionalism. There's, there's nothing to it. Trials, suffering will burn up those false professions of faith to see what we're really made of, to investigate us, to find us out. Now I want us to look at our response to trials, our response to afflictions. James says, consider it, count it all joy, my brethren. Count it joy. Dear friends, let me tell you what James is not saying here. James is not saying enjoy your trials. Okay? Trials are not enjoyable. That's why they're called trials. Please don't fall into this hyper-spiritual trap. And you think if you're going through a time of affliction or suffering of some sort, please don't fall in this hyper-spiritual trap and you worry, well, if I'm not enjoying it, then there's something wrong with me. No. There's not anything wrong with you. You're not supposed to enjoy your trial. That's why they're called trials. I suppose one of the things that is most obvious about me and one of my trials that I face is my cerebral palsy. I was born with CP. And you know what? I, I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to sit here and be all sanctimonious on my super spiritual high horse and say that my handicap never bothers me. Sometimes, you know what? It does. There's days I'd, if I had my druthers, I'd rather not be crippled. So I don't enjoy having CP, but you know what? I can count it as joy. Even though I don't in and of itself enjoy it, I can count it as joy. How? Because I know that I deserve anything short of hell is God's mercy on me. Anything short of hell is his mercy. And I can, I can count it as joy knowing who God is. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How do we know these things? By studying. How do I know that God has a purpose 
for my suffering, whether it's my handicap or something else? How do you know that God has a purpose for your suffering? You know these things by studying his word. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, as Paul wrote to the Colossians. Let the word of Christ, the word of God, richly dwell within you. And the more your mind is saturated with the word of God, the more you will be able to count your suffering as joy, even though in and of themselves you don't enjoy the suffering. But you can count it as joy. You can count it as joy when you know who God is. If you've never done a study on the attributes of God, dear friends, can I joyfully encourage you to do a study on the attributes of God? The more we know who he is, the more we trust him. Study his attributes, his, his perfections as they're sometimes called. Study his faithfulness, his mercy, his holiness, his wrath, his aseity, his omniscience, his omnipresence. All of these attributes of God study who he is. And the more we know who God is, the more we trust him. And the more we can rest in his good providences in our lives. The more we can rest in his sovereignty, the more we know who he is. And I know that not only will God not act towards me that is in any way outside of his character and his nature, God cannot do that. God cannot do that. Oftentimes we think in terms, well, God can do anything. Well, just sort of. Are there things that God cannot do? Yes, there are. There are things that not only will he just, not just will he not do, but he cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot deny himself. God cannot act in any way that is outside of his character and his nature. Amen. Not just that he won't, he can't. And so the more we know who God is, the more we can rest in his sovereignty knowing that, Lord, no matter what it is I am facing, I can count it as joy because I know that you cannot act towards me that is in any way outside of who you are. And I can count it as joy. And we can count our suffering as joy also, dear friends, knowing that no matter how severe it is, no matter how acute the suffering may be, it is but temporary. It's temporary. We have all of eternity to live without our suffering. It's temporary. Study who God is. 1 Peter chapter 5, 6-7 through 7 says this. The Apostle Peter writes, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God cares for you. Ever since I was a, a little boy, I've always had an interest in astronomy. And I'm sure you've heard some of these numbers thrown out, but uh, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. I looked these numbers up. Uh, the mass of the earth is 6.6 .6 sextillion tons. 
6.66 trillion tons. You know how big that is? I don't either. <laughs> I don't even know how many zeros that is. I don't have any comprehension of that. As massive as this earth is, there are, you could fit 1.3 million earths inside of our sun. 1.3 million of our planets inside the sun. And our sun is just an average size star. There's some smaller, but there's some that are a whole lot bigger. There's one star out there named UI Scuddy. You could fit 9.3 billion suns inside this one single star named UI Scuddy. 1.3 million Earths inside our sun, 9.3 billion suns inside of UI Scuddy. The human mind can't comprehend that. That, that's, we can't wrap our minds around that. And that's just one star. There's billions of, us, of stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. Do you know how many galaxies there are? We don't even know. Trillions. There's galaxies out there that we haven't even yet discovered. So why do I say all this? Our great God who spoke all of this into existence. Not, not only did he speak it into existence, but he upholds all of it by the word of his power. Do you know what, do you know what would happen to the universe if God ever stopped working? Even for a nanosecond, you know what would happen? The entire universe would vaporize. It would disappear if God ever stopped working even for an instant. What a great God we serve. I say all of that to say this, dear ones. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, when Peter says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The most natural and literal rendering of this in the Greek, he cares for you, is this. It matters to him about you. It matters to him about you. This great God who spoke all of this into existence, the scope of which we cannot begin to even comprehend, it matters to him about you. Whatever it is that you are going through right now, it matters to him about you. Selah. What a great God. This is how we can count it as all joy. It matters to him about us. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, endurance. This word in the Greek is hupomene, and it literally means to remain under Hupo underneath, Monet remain, literally to remain under, to remain under. Dear friends, God gives his own children, more, more often than not, not the ability to remove the trial, but the ability to remain underneath the trial, to Hupamane the trial, to endure the trial. More often times than not, God does not remove our suffering. 
He gives us his sufficient grace to hopomene through the suffering, to remain underneath it. I remember growing up as a boy in a Southern Baptist church. You know, we'd have Sunday morning, Sunday night church, and then Wednesday night prayer meeting. And we'd gather for Wednesday night prayer meeting. We'd have a little meal that usually wasn't too good. And, but then the, the pastor would get up or the, somebody would get up and, and take a prayer request. Anybody have any prayer requests? What are 99 out of 100 prayer requests for? Somebody's sick, right? Somebody's sick. Somebody's in the hospital. Somebody's having surgery. And, you know, I, I'm not against, please don't hear me, I am not against praying for people to be healed. I am not against praying that God would remove uh, a time of suffering from someone. But maybe instead of spending all of our time praying for things like, Lord, take this suffering away from me, or Lord, take this suffering away from this person, maybe instead of spending all of our time praying for God to remove the trials, maybe we should spend a little bit more time praying things like this. Lord, use this trial in my life to sanctify me. Use this trial, this suffering in my life to conform me into the image of my king. Use this trial in my life to bring me to the end of myself. Use this trial in my life to help me to lean hard on you. And Lord, through this suffering, through the persecution, through the sickness, through the affliction, Lord, help me to carry your name well and speak well of you and to glorify Christ. Maybe we should spend a little bit more time praying for things like that. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. The Apostle Paul writes, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. It has been granted to us, dear ones, not only to believe in Christ. Our faith in Christ is granted to us. It is given as a gift to us. But you know what else is given as a gift to us? The opportunity to suffer for the sake of Christ. We don't often think of suffering in terms of something that is granted to us. But it is. These are privileges. These are things that are granted to us by God. To sanctify us, to conform us into the image of our King, and ultimately to glorify God. To glorify Christ. It is a privilege to suffer. Trials help us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, its perfect work, so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now this is not talking about sinless perfection, not that kind of perfect and complete. Salvation is not perfection, it's direction. Which direction is your life going? But trials serve to conform us into the image of our King Jesus. They sanctify us. They give us opportunities to glorify God. And we are lacking in nothing. 
We are not ill-equipped. God has not left us ill-equipped when these times of afflictions come. We are lacking in nothing. We have his word. We have the sufficient word of God. We are indwelt by the third person of the triune Godhead. We have his Holy Spirit. We have the fellowship of the saints. We have the local church. And when we became Christians, when he saved us, he adopted us into his family. And we as Christians have millions upon millions of family members, brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. We are fully equipped to face these trials. Returning to Asaph in Psalm chapter 73. Remember Asaph when he said, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. He saw the righteous suffer and he saw the wicked prosper. And it so vexed him. said, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. Sometimes trials can be so severe in our lives that we get right up to the brink of apostasy and we peer off into the abyss. Asaph got right up to the brink and he peered off into the abyss. John the Baptist got right up to the brink. He found himself in prison and things weren't turning out the way he thought that they would and so he sent a question to Jesus by his disciples, are, are you the Messiah? Or, or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus didn't rebuke him. Jesus said, no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist got right up to the brink and he peered off into the abyss. The apostle Paul got right up to the brink and he peered off into the abyss. Sometimes our suffering can be so Severe, dear ones, God will let us get right up to the brink and peer off into the abyss. But God, God will reach out with his strong arm and he will pull us back from the edge. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforts us in all our affliction. Asaph got right up to the brink but then everything changed in verse 17 of Psalm chapter 73. Everything changed. Then Asaph said, but then I came into the sanctuary of God. He came into the sanctuary of God and everything changed. In other words, he got God's perspective on suffering. And when he got God's perspective on suffering, Everything changed. Everything changed. We must always seek God's perspective on our afflictions. Dear one, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, when you suffer, come into the sanctuary of God. Study his word. Get his perspective. Trust him. Rest in who you know him to be. Rest in God's sovereignty. 1 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter writes this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, tested by the fires of affliction, may be found to result in praise, in glory, in honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our suffering, ultimately, is to result in the praise of the glory of his grace. God oftentimes is most glorified in us, not when things are well, but when things are hard. May it result to the praise of the glory of his grace. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do indeed encounter various trials. And though we do not enjoy them, Lord, may we count them as joy. May we rest in who we know you to be, who you have revealed yourself to be to us in your word. May we rest in your sovereignty, in your goodness, in your provision. May we rest in the fact that you who upholds all things by the words of your power, you are the one that it matters to you about us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. May we find comfort in the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, your written word and the fellowship of the saints, to the praise of glory, to the praise of our of the glory of Christ our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen.